My name is Billy Mangala, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Frankie Lewis, a writer for the Arts and Culture Desk with the Daily Emerald. This is another episode of Season 2 of Spotlight on Science. In this series, members of the University of Oregon science community sit down and talk about their research and current events in their field in a language that we can all understand. Today, our guest is Becca Kudmore, freelance science journalist and UO alum. We discussed her new story about cougars in the Willamette Valley, her past work for Audubon and Nautilus, the ongoing challenge of communicating science to the public, and more. Let's get to it. Becca, thanks again for, for joining us today. Uh, we're here on a Sunday, which is, you know, it's after hours for everyone. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, I loved your story on rats in Vancouver. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, who gave you the tip for that story? Like, how did you first hear about it? Yeah, I don't think um, anyone in particular gave me that tip. That was uh, reading a lot of news articles, um, trying to get a sense of what was going on in the Pacific Northwest, and that happened to be up in Vancouver, BC, and I just noticed a lot of articles about the urban rat population and um, as far as being in schoolyards and um, in restaurants, and it was just various different outlets were publishing about this rat issue up yeah. north. So it's kind so. of assimilating all those different ideas yeah. and putting them all together. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so what was like the most unexpected aspect of the story that you kind of stumbled upon? Yeah, um, I guess su- surprising and interesting to me while I was reporting it was just the fact that uh, these rats are not only absorbing human diseases, which is just kind of gross and weird, um, but also that when these diseases are inside of the rat body, they're actually changing, they're transforming. And so when we interact with rats and when rats come into our restaurants, which is happening a lot um, all over the Pacific Northwest, um, when they come into our restaurants, they're bringing these new diseases to us. And so we're getting these transformed diseases that we've actually created but have been changed by the rat yeah. population when they come in and like, interact with us. So that to me was just fascinating that's and weird. W- that's <laughs> wild. Yeah. I think like most people don't don't give rats enough credit, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Powerful animals. Um, yeah. yeah. And just a brief explanation. So for people who haven't read the story, please go read it if you haven't. But um, how it, the, the basis, correct me if I'm wrong, is that mm-hmm kind of these rats live in various societies that are almost segmented by city blocks, Mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, how might, like, halting rat extermination, like, be better for cities? Yeah, yeah, because essentially what these researchers um, up in Vancouver have found is that uh, rats live in family groups, and they're essentially... Um, holding on to the disease with the family group. And so if they're segmented by city block, um, when we go in and we kill one rat, the others are fleeing and spreading that family disease to other rat groups. And mm. so we're adding to this transformation of disease that we can't really keep up with our own, keep up with, with our own um, vaccines and whatnot. And yeah. so when we kill one rat, we're essentially um, taking that family's disease and spreading it. So, right. Um, yeah, we, might yeah. As well. yeah, we all we have a track record with uh, rat-borne diseases as well. That, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, don't we, don't, a, we don't have a great streak with that. Don't want to revisit that, <laughs> right? Um, all right, getting more to your personal journey a bit. Um, when did you first know you wanted to be a science journalist, and what was going on in your life at the time? 
Um, yeah, I guess we talked about this a little bit yeah. um, before. I was an undergrad studying um, anthropology, biology, environmental science. Here at the UO, um, by the way. Yep, yeah, here at University of Oregon, grade school. Um, and I think I would just, I would be in a class and I would hear some incredible fact. I mean, it doesn't really matter which class it was. I would just get really inspired by hearing something the professor said and immediately after write it down or call a friend or call my mom and be like, guess what? And um, like I said, I kind of hope that my excitement is shared by the people I shared that with, (laughs) but um, just being really excited about what I was learning and wanting to share it. And um, that was, yeah, in undergrad and what was going on in my life. I think um, I had just gotten back from Indonesia. Um, I did, yeah, yeah, a volunteer trip there um, and just kind of wanting to um, explore ideas and learn and, you know, yeah. Yeah, did that trip to Indonesia kind of shape your life? Because I know a lot of times when people go abroad, they kind of have... I don't know, an eye-opening experience or something. Yeah, yeah, that changed a lot for me. It was really a short volunteer stint. It was mm-hmm. with Orangutan um, uh, Foundation International, so volunteering, like building bridges and environmental work. Um, but just kind of seeing a lot of what you're learning happen on the ground and sort of the effects of um, our food system and uh, just kind of how we live here in the West and how that affects other places yeah. is just sort of <clears throat> eye-opening perspective um, broadening. So yeah. yeah, and did you do a, like a project with um, uh, Dr. Sterner, we both know, is in the anthropology department. Did mm-hmm. you do a project with her through the Orangutan Foundation? Or? Yes, she oh, yeah. was um, instrumental in um, um, helping me uh, create a project to, um, so I went to, um, OFI, Oregon Foundation International, and right. then returned to do this undergraduate okay. pro- project. So two different summers. And I developed a project with Dr. Sterner through her biological anthropology methods course, which I think is still here at yes. the UofL. Um, and so that was basically just writing out a proposal and then sending several emails back and her helping me edit that. So right. kind of like a first paper that, um, I ended up publishing online, but not in a journal. So still could do that. Too, right. But Which I think, I mean, that's unique know. for some science journalists. I mean, not mm-hmm. not every science journalist has actually done research. I mean, not only did you do that project, you were working with mosquitoes in a different laboratory while you were mm-hmm. here. Um, I think that's kind of a unique skill that not many people can say they've done. But yeah. um, <laughs> what are kind of the, because you're freelancing right now, what are kind of the pros and cons of freelancing? Yeah. Because there's some, there's some <laughs> big question. pros and there's some big cons. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we'll start. I'm trying to be positive. Yeah, so the, be positive, yeah, yeah. optimism. Um, the pros, freedom. Yeah. You have freedom. You don't have to go into an office every day. I did right. that for a little while um, and wasn't the right fit for me. Some people need that structure. But yeah. with freelancing, you set your own schedule right. and there are pros and cons with that. Yeah. So you need to have a lot of self-discipline yeah. and... Um, uh, yeah, the freedom. You can have a family if you want a family. You can do other things, have another job even. Um, uh, a lot of time for your own independent research and kind of following your curiosity. Um, cons, you have to have a lot of self-discipline, yeah, <laughs> like exactly. I said. Yeah, um, and um, it can kind of consume in your whole life. So you have to be careful that you um, are able to manage work-life balance and you don't let you know seep into all parts of your life that right. you're able to maintain. Yeah, have to kind that. of carp compartmentalize a little bit yeah yeah, yeah it's the goal yeah the goal <laughs> that is, is to the do goal that. yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> how has mm. your writing style changed since you first started writing because i imagine mm. you're a pretty polished writer now but like in the beginning i'm sure that wasn't the case since you weren't a journalism major initially yeah um 
I think I have always like kept a journal, kept notes, and so it was just very freeform Becca's mind. Um, and so I look back at it now, and I'm like, I kind of like I kind of like that because now I've gotten so tuned to writing for the internet, which is short and quick, and your your primary concern is your reader rather than getting you know your own thoughts down. And so when I look back at some of like those just notes from I don't know. Like after going to a lecture, for example, and taking a bunch of notes, it's just very free form, sort of not thinking about anyone except for the idea. Um, uh-huh. And then now when I write, I'm writing for an internet audience, which is a very specific audience, and you are um, kind of tailoring everything you say. So yeah. a little less, um, I think it's just shorter now and more to the point, more yeah. direct. Do you miss yeah. kind of the little long form, kind of more... Um... There's more kind of subtleties mm. and a little more finesse with that style, right? Do you miss that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, who does it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, it's something I'm trying to get back to, but it's it's hard because it's not – it's kind of wandering and long, and not everyone's to read what you think about everything. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, what's been one of your favorite stories to report on? Um, or maybe your most challenging. Maybe it's the same story. Hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, I loved reporting the rat story mainly because it was on the ground. Um, Mm -hmm. and I've done that with a couple of stories, but, um, I think what I, one I really enjoyed was, uh, reporting on the Elwha Dam in the Olympic, um, Olympic National Park Mm -hmm. in Washington. Um, because I got to drive there, um, it was for Audubon and it was the first time I'd ever actually seen, um, the Elwha River or, um, this, uh, post-dam site and so actually getting to see something that I just heard about in so many environmental courses and I feel like um, the removal of dams has been like kind of ongoing over the past 20 years or something Mm. it's probably not right um and so just kind of getting to see something that I'd heard so much about and was so close to home and seeing the scientists who um are involved in this um dam removal process and sort of re-restoration process that's ongoing was kind of I don't know inspiring just to see that yeah Um, it's like such a big moment in environmental time and getting to sort of be a part of that and report on yeah. it is cool were there so, any like big challenges involved with reporting that story that story um yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah as with a lot of environmental stories just getting to the bottom yeah. of something yeah unlike science where it's like this is what we found environmental stories it's like this is what we found but this is how you need to share it because there's the tribe involved there are the mm-hmm. researchers involved there's the, what the public um wants to hear involved yeah. and just so many different um yeah people that you need to be careful of not yeah. stepping on toes and yeah. things like that so in those um, stories like i feel like i always appreciate those stories because there's kind of there's so many people who care kind mm. of which is like um i found is a big thing that makes it really challenging it also makes it really difficult I mean and, and also you appreciate so yeah. all right I mean shifting a little bit more towards kind of a general science journalism discussion um, when you tell people you're a science journalist um, what misconceptions do you have to deal with often yeah that's a good question <laughs> um, I think there's misconceptions and also stereotypes so probably in the same box but um, that I kind of know what I'm talking about and that I do have a background in science. Uh, I think that's often lost that um, a lot of the times that scientists have interacted with a journalist or a science journalist, this is someone who's part of a newspaper, which is not bad or lesser by any means. It's just that I would like to think that I come from a family of biologists. I studied sciences in undergrad and went into a 
specific program for science journalism that I have a little more to offer and a little yeah. more background. And I would just kind of feel like that gets lost when you attach journalist to your title. Um, so I tend to go by science writer or science communications. I'm mm -hmm. still trying to figure out what the right word is. But yeah. um, I think just sort of that level of respect from the scientists is, um, I guess it's a misconception of just sort of who you are and what you know and why you're reporting something. And it's not just... Um, because it sounds cool. It's like right. I, I have personal interest in it right. too. So. Exactly. Yeah. On the other hand, though, you also don't want to kind of oversimplify something mm. too. I mean, you want to kind of have respect for the scientists and you know what yes. they're doing. Yes. Um, how do you kind of balance like that oversimplifying the results with like being too technical? Yeah. Um, it's a it's a yeah. question that we all struggle with. So. Yeah, I think um, just having very frank oversimplified conversations with the scientists yeah. yeah and sounding like an idiot <laughs> or asking <laughs> questions that are like too simple and easy yeah just to make sure that you understand it because mm -hmm. that's going to come through the most when you're writing is whether or not you understand the concept yourself and if you don't understand it or if you were too embarrassed to ask a, the, the scientist one of those very yeah. specific questions then it's going to come through in the writing there's going to be a hole and that's going to be yeah. the hole that is going to mislead people and they aren't going to understand right. the concept yeah. right I know another kind of issue too, which kind of plays into that that I've run into too, is mm -hmm. you'll um, a lot of scientists will kind of want to see the story ahead of time to make sure mm -hmm. their their work is represented correctly. Um, and you know, as as communicators and, and journalists and writers, we you know you want to keep the integrity of your um, of journalism and kind of you know you don't want to show the story ahead of time because it's conflict of interest. Yes. But when it comes to science, you you are tempted to because it's kind of like you don't want to misrepresent what they're actually doing because maybe you just inherently do not get it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. How do you, do? You, have you ever kind of helped, have, have you let scientists kind of help you with your story? How do you kind of balance that expertise? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Everything you described yeah. is very um, true of science journalism. And you need to give credit to the fact that this is someone who's studying this as their life's work. Yeah. And I'm studying it for a month, a year if I'm lucky, you know, yeah. so you need to balance that. Um, and I think um, sending, I would never send the whole story to the scientist because that's not the point of the story. But mm -hmm. when you're talking about their science and the facts of their science you need to send I don't think you need to but I prefer to send that to them before and talk on the phone have a conversation before publishing it to make sure that you just have what they're doing right, right. like that doesn't mean you have to like support it or think that it's necessarily the best science out there but just making sure that what they're doing you're presenting to the public correctly because right. this is their entire life's work that you're putting out into the world yeah. and like putting on the line if you say something wrong like that could be the end of their career or that could change their career so you just yeah. needing the responsibility I guess yeah, yeah. I think that the stakes in science journalism are so high too yeah. because it's like yeah. funding is based off of like public perception of the work too yeah. so you really it's like um it, it's really difficult to kind of you know balance that like integrity with like getting the facts right yep. so yeah very true. Um, uh, why aren't more people interested in science? This is probably this is a pretty <laughs> frank question, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of because for me, it's like you know, when we were talking about this earlier. I you know they took this cosmology class, and all this mm -hmm. stuff sounds so interesting. Um, some people just aren't interested in it. So why aren't why aren't more people like us, basically? <laughs> Which I'm asking <laughs> the wrong person. Like but... me, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I guess I have like two 
thoughts on that is yeah. that I think that science is kind of getting cool. Like okay. there, or my, that's my perception. So maybe. Yeah. I but I, I think it is becoming cooler, at least in our generation. Um, and people are becoming more science based. Um, and that's probably the result of a lot of effort towards science communication. Um, but it's it's hard and it's complex and it's not straightforward and it's not intuitive and um, oftentimes it's not it's like that counterintuitive not how you would assume something to be it's just not always comfortable to hear right. and it takes a little bit more than just reading something at face value and a lot of time people don't have the time or yeah. like the interest to look at something beyond face value so. Um, I don't know, just a little bit harder and qu- requires a little more energy to understand yeah. science sometimes. And it can probably be a little intimidating, too, if you yeah. don't have familiarity with it Yeah. Um, behind that wall. Well, a lot of times it's not comfortable. I think that's I mm-hmm. think that's one of the biggest things for me is, like, um, it seems like a lot of these articles are written in a way that it's it does. You're right. It takes a lot of effort to read it. And it's like, would people rather read that or would they rather read, like, the latest Kardashian, like, rumor? Yeah. Like, I mean... And can you tie them together somehow? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the next... Uh, yeah, we need a study on the Kardashian uh, geopolitics. <laughs> you know, yeah. I I feel like there might be... There's something out there, a recent science article, that ties in the Kardashians. I don't really? know what it's about, but it might be some sort of, like, beauty science or something. Maybe that's but, the key. You just yeah. have to throw them in the title and then you'll just <laughs> yeah. get the clicks that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, why, like, why should someone want to be a science journalist? Mm, Because it's, it's fun. I think it's really fun. It's really interesting. Um, and you're always learning. Um, you get to talk with really cool, smart people who you would never be able to access in normal life. Um, you get to be creative. You get to um, do good work for the public. Um, you're helping people. You are getting to get out and see things on the ground, ideally. Um, there is money in it that is hard to get if you're not in a staff job. Right. Um, but there is there is pretty good money in it. Um, and you kind of get to bridge between both the arts and the sciences, which is important, at least to me. I well, think. There's, yeah, there's not a lot of people doing it, right? I mean, it's a hard, it's a difficult job, right? It's a hard job. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard job. Um, you can say I, that about a lot yeah. of things, too. But yeah. I think in particular, it's like even for in the field of journalism, it's one of the harder journalism yeah, jobs to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just teasing a bit before we get you out here, you're working on a story about uh, cougars in the Willamette Valley. Yes. Um you know, you don't have to you don't have to delve into too detail because I know this is an upcoming story. But um, can you give a can you give listeners a little bit preview of what's to come? Yes, um, very early in stages, but this is kind of about the dynamics between cougars and other predators. Um, I'm not sure if this is just Willamette Valley or spreading beyond Pacific Northwest. It seems okay. like there's a lot of research going on it right now. Okay. Um, but it's sort of the dynamics between wolves and cougars and sort of mm. who is the top predator mm. here and who is responsible for a lot of livestock kills as well as um, their other prey, elk, deer, um, kind of who's the top predator in our woods, which is research that's been ongoing for the past mm. few years and it's wrapping up this winter, so I'm hoping to write something that comes out later this year. Yeah. And is this debate kind of unique to Oregon or is this happening all over the it's, country? It's um, Oregon, Washington, and then it looks like also up in Canada, like British Columbia. Mm, okay. um, except up there, there's caribou and we don't have caribou here. Oh, so true, it's kind yeah. of a different predator-prey dynamic. Yeah. But yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Um, so. 
that would be interesting. Well, thanks again for joining us. Um, I really appreciate your time. And you know, anytime you're in Eugene, let me know. We'll be back on. So sounds good. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. This is our sixth episode of season two of Spotlight on Science. Big thanks to Becca for being our guest today. I'm Frankie Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO Science community for us to interview, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for listening.